Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am in New York City here for the Strata Conference, and I've got the pleasure of being seated with Atul Kale. Atul is an engineering manager at Airbnb on the machine learning infrastructure team. Atul, welcome to uh, This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So yesterday you did a presentation on Airbnb's machine learning platform, which is called Big Head. It was a great presentation. And I'm really looking forward to diving into some of the details with you. But before we do that, how did you get into ML and AI? Yeah, sure. So I'm trained as a computer engineer. Uh, I went to the University of Illinois. And uh, right out of college, I actually uh, started my career in the trading industry at a firm called DRW Trading. Um, and DRW, uh, you know, they're a proprietary trading firm. So they you know, trade their own money for their own profit. They don't have any customers. And you know you can imagine um, for a trading firm like DRW, it's really important to have a data warehouse that's stocked full of information about uh, the financial markets. So imagine you know you're working on um, uh, you know a particular trading strategy, and you need something kind of like uh, TiVo for the markets, right? So you need to be able to understand at a very fine granularity exactly what was going on on a particular exchange or in the markets for a particular instrument. So um, my first job at DRW was to create that data warehouse, you know, everything from kind of the basic ETL and even like the data capture and all that sort of stuff, um, as well as like that backend uh, database that's required. But then after I completed working on that, I, I made a transition towards working on trading strategies. And that's kind of where I got more into machine learning. So uh, we went through kind of two different trading strategies. Um, one was uh, kind of light on the machine learning and one was really heavy on machine learning. Uh, and in that latter one, I started um, really focusing on infrastructure. I, I think uh, in general, my background is in backend work and infrastructure engineering. Uh, so that's really you know where my passion is. And for the trading strategies that we were working on, we really needed a high degree of uh, automation and sophistication around training our models. So uh, I spent quite a bit of time uh, working on building infrastructure for my individual team. And then, you know, about a year and a half ago, I was kind of looking to make a transition and I got a good opportunity at Airbnb, um, you know, working on their machine learning infrastructure team, kind of combining uh, this passion for infrastructure with the interest I have in machine learning. So uh, I've been working there for about the last uh, year or so, and I'm currently leading uh, the, the team. The way you explained the motivation for Big Head in your presentation, I thought was was very well put. You talked about uh, this notion of inherent complexity and incidental complexity. What are those? Right. Yeah. So I I think the term that we use is uh, intrinsic complexity and uh, incidental complexity. We we kind of just made these terms up. Uh, But the idea is pretty simple that um, the intrinsic complexity with machine learning is all about, you know, kind of understanding the latest modeling techniques, picking the right model, picking the right features for your model, 
um, and then really fine-tuning that. Uh, you know, machine learning in, in some ways is kind of an art of, uh, you know, really understanding your problem domain and uh, fitting the right models to it. And that's really what we found that our ML practitioners at Airbnb, by that I mean like uh, in, uh, the data scientists and engineers that are working on deploying ML in our uh, product, we found that they're really interested in solving those problems. But on the other hand, there's this other side of getting a machine learning uh, project off the ground, and that's incidental complexity. That's what we call it. And that has to do with all like the messy details of uh, you know, getting access to your data warehouse um, and then making sure that what you prototype with is, you know, what is consistent with what you actually go into production with. And, um, you know, just having consistency also between your, your trained model and uh, what you're going to actually see in production at uh, inference time, for example. So there's a lot of, like, messy details there. You know, you also have to... Um, deal with managing all the various experiments that you've got, the versions of your model, and you know all of that just adds up to a lot. Um, and and we, what we found is that when teams were having to deal with intrinsic complexity and incidental complexity together, that's just you know overwhelming for them. Um, and a lot of teams uh, at Airbnb were just not even uh, that interested in machine learning, just because the cost of it was so high. So part of the the goal is to reduce the barrier to entry so that a greater proportion of teams could incorporate machine learning into what they're doing. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, our goal as a team, the machine learning infrastructure team, is really to scale ML at Airbnb. And um, in order to reach that goal, of course, you know, we're going to need to reduce the barrier to entry. So that's really important to us. How did it evolve? Was it initially a collection of specific tools that solve specific problems or was it architected from the beginning as kind of a broad platform? Oh yeah, definitely we did not get this right from the start. Uh, <laughs> I think that um, yeah, as with many products, it's just like a you know cycle of iteration and um, you know lessons learned and then applying those lessons learned and building something new. So the history for us specifically is that um, you know, Big Head's components, sort of the subcomponents of Big Head are, uh, they're pieces that um, Airbnb had kind of collected over the years, all to solve, you know, really specific problems um, with machine learning, with getting machine learning into production. And we found that that was kind of piecemeal. Um, you know, of course, those problems were solved, um, sometimes not in the most sustainable way, but solved nonetheless. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, you know, when we looked at the entire system and we looked at the shortcomings, the problem was really that it wasn't cohesive. All these um, piecemeal components didn't really fit well together. So Big Head was an attempt to kind of make one more pass over the entire system, the entire architecture, and really focus this time on cohesiveness and end-to-end -end consistency. Maybe let's walk through the various components of the system. Where, where do you start? Oh, you, you went through this in your presentation uh, yesterday. What was the first component that you presented? Yeah, sure. So we start with uh, where our users start, right? So our users need to prototype. They need kind of a development environment for machine learning. And uh, for that, we have uh, RedSpot, which is really just a Jupyter Notebook uh, service. It's Jupyter Notebooks as a service. But, you know, they're really not just, um, you know, the same as running a notebook on your laptop. Uh, it's 
pretty high powered. You can plug it into more or less, you know, uh, any EC2 instance type on AWS that we have available. Um, so you can get access to things like uh, GPUs and really high memory uh, instances. So you can um, be kind of unblocked to get your work done. But then in addition, it's uh, really cleanly integrated into our uh, data warehouse so that you have access to all the wealth of data that's going to actually make your machine learning uh, project powerful. Yeah, one of the things that I've I've run into just with personal experimentation is you choose an instance type, you start running some experiment, and then you realize that you get to a point where you wish you had more hardware. Like, have you managed to decouple the notebook itself from the underlying infrastructure? Yeah, yeah, that's a, a great point. Um, I think this is actually something that we're looking to address in the future. Uh, it's um, you know not just that you might not know exactly what hardware you need, but also it's pretty efficient for, or inefficient rather for every every user that might need to train a you know deep neural neural network to fire up a you know eight GPU machine and have it sitting around for weeks maybe while they tinker around with their model right um, so. Uh, that's definitely an area of concern. You can't, you know, vertically scale individuals' development environment uh, for long. So um, what we're doing, and this is kind of on our roadmap, is to build out um, what we're calling Big Q right now. Okay. Uh, the idea is that, you know, your notebook environment can then become really thin. And instead, what you do is you just submit your uh, job for training your model off to a work queue that's powered by GPUs or potentially, you know, the latest in distributed training algorithms, something like that. This is sort of a follow-on to the rest of our infrastructure, where the goal is to really neatly encapsulate models. Once we have that powerful abstraction, now we can create these high-power um, tools like BigQ, where we understand enough about your model that we can we can train it really efficiently. So it's definitely kind of out there on our roadmap. And I, I think it was one of those things where we took an initial stab and we looked at our user base and we said, well, yeah, this kind of works for most people. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's definitely kind of minimally viable there, but um, we have a lot of plans to make that more efficient. Mm -hmm. And then underlying the, the notebooks, all of the code is stored in Git repositories. And is that, um, is that, transparent to the user or is the user uh, kind of manually checking things and checking things out? Um, I mean, the user is indicating that they want to check things in, but have you built uh, kind of in UI into the notebook experience where they're doing that or they're doing that kind of traditionally? They're, they're doing that more traditionally. Um, I think that, uh, you know, we can try to hide away some of the details of version control, but ultimately... Um, you know, it's it's kind of just a complicated, messy process, yeah. version control in general. Um, so we don't really want to try to reinvent the wheel on, on that. Um, what we focus on is just making sure that it's easy to get your notebook or Python code uh, into production and that it's neatly versioned just like any other production code. And now Python code typically has, uh, or the notebook code typically has annotations and other uh, types of artifacts that you don't necessarily want to, um, you know, they're there for experimentation, but they're not there for, um, you know, when you're actually trying to put a model into production. Do you separate those somehow? Yeah, yeah. So I think 
just to start, uh, I would say that we don't necessarily focus on notebooks. We really just treat notebooks as Python code. And what we do is pre-process those notebooks to kind of strip out um, the annotations and strip out some of the uh, ex exploratory work that you might be doing while you're prototyping. And, uh, you know, right now, of course, that's pretty simple. You just have to tag your notebook cells as a prototype or not. And, um, and we just uh, strip them out. Maybe, who knows, we'll come up with a machine learning model to do that automatically <laughs> or something. But yeah, it's, it's pretty much um, manually tagged for now. And, and we've actually been doing that um, for a while, and it seems to work uh, reasonably well. Um, but I think that one thing to note is that notebooks are kind of... A mixed bag. Um, on the one hand, you've got uh, this ability to annotate things, to show your work, and to um, you know really show the process of experimentation. And that's great for machine learning projects, where uh, especially when you get to kind of code review time, what you're reviewing when you look at somebody else's project isn't really just their code. You're reviewing kind of their thought process, their experimentation process. So it's almost kind of more like a research paper um, mm -hmm. or something like that than it is just you know a normal code review. So notebooks are great for that. Um, right. What they're not great for is kind of the traditional um, software engineering um, process. Uh, composition isn't great. You know, of course, mm -hmm. you can uh, jam all of your code right into the notebook, but um, you know, a lot of times we find people repeating themselves. Um, and uh, testing, unit testing, this is super important for software engineering, um, but it's equally important for some of this machine learning code. And um, I think we're trying to strike the right balance between having those um, really solid uh, software engineering uh, practices as well as having that flexibility of the notebook. Uh, so what's the next component? So next up in sort of the life cycle for, our, for uh, getting your model into production, that would be Big Head Service. So the idea with Big Head Service is uh, to manage all of the different versions of your model, um, maybe the different experiments that you have, or you can imagine that, say, you have a model that needs to be trained uh, weekly. All of those versions of that model are stored in Big Head Service. And it's got this nice convenient UI uh, where you can go in and click uh, deploy on your model and voila, it's in production. And kind of, you know, for a lot of users, we're hoping that, you know, they start with their notebook, they, they go into Big Head service, they hit deploy and end of story. That's sort of the happy path, of course. Mm. Um, you know, uh, and, and maybe you don't have to go even further than that, but of course, things do go wrong, uh, and when they do, Big Head Service also kind of serves as a portal into some of our model debugging tools, and those are more related to how we run our models in production. So uh, the next pieces in the process are to actually get your model into production. So say um, you've got a model that takes an image of, I don't know, like a listing photo and uh, predicts whether it's a bathroom or not. and you need to be able to do this live uh, in real time in production. Maybe it's hooked up to the Airbnb website, and uh, you want to when you when you when a host uh, uploads a listing photo, you want to see if it's a bathroom to ask them something like, uh, you know, how many towels are there? Um, do you have a hair dryer? You know, little details like that. So say there's some kind of feature, uh, and you need just sort of a live prediction. That's where uh, our uh, component Deep Thought comes in. 
Um, it's just designed to be scalable, um, offer like a REST endpoint for your model. Uh, and that's, that's something I think that's pretty standard we've seen across the industry. And then we've also got another productionization component that's called ML Automator. Uh, the idea here is to automate batch training and batch inference. And I think at Airbnb, maybe more than uh, other, uh, other places, uh, batch inference is actually a, a pretty um, common thing. So there's a lot of times where you don't really need a live score. You just need to kind of backfill a lot of predictions or scores uh, across your data. And so that's that's where ML Automator comes in. Hmm. And so when you're when the developer is working in the big head service interface and they click deploy, that's kind of pushing the model to deep thought, deploying it out on some actual machines and exposing the rest endpoint, and then they can build that into whatever they're trying to use the model for. Yeah, exactly. If if they have their model set up for live inference, then when you click deploy, it's just like deploying a service at Airbnb, right? Uh, it's kind of a new version of that service that's going out there, and that endpoint is now available. And you know, we do some things to try to make sure that that endpoint stays uh, available for you know spikes in traffic, or you know potentially if that endpoint. That particular model needs a lot of memory, maybe to load a bunch of parameters into memory. So we do a lot of fine tuning there to make sure that more or less we kind of hide that away from our users who mm -hmm. don't necessarily want to deal with the, the details of scaling their model. Right. Um, and hopefully, you know, since we're leveraging Kubernetes for that, we're hoping that we can um, really get some of the benefits of potentially auto scaling algorithms there. Uh, and has that, has that worked well so far? Yeah, Kubernetes has been uh, definitely working well so far. I think auto-scaling is a little bit trickier, um, uh, but that's something that right now we're just kind of getting into. Mm -hmm. and, and are you using, are you kind of finally managing uh, GPU requirements and things like that that a given model might have and placing those on specific pods or workers in the Kubernetes environments? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So uh, when we ask our users to specify their model, we ask them to specify their requirements for computation upfront. So that includes like uh, memory requirements or number of cores or potentially GPU. And then we use that throughout the rest of our system to make sure that their model runs in environments suitable for uh, their resource requirements uh, in production. I think earlier in the conversation, you've mentioned experiment management and things like that, but I don't think that came up in Big Head Service Deep Thought or ML Automator. Is yeah, it someplace yeah. else in the system? No, actually, that's that's right. In, that's right, built into Big Head Service. So, okay, um, yeah, I think that like this whole process of getting your model from prototype and clicking the deploy button and it's in production. That's great, but it's actually kind of scary, you know, just getting your model in a production with just a quick deploy. Um, you know, is it is it ready? Is it predictive? Do you know whether it even works or not? Right. Um, so that's where Big Head Service offers a whole lot of kind of introspection tools um, into your model. And, uh, you know, like some of the examples of that, um, you know, if we wrap a particular library called like, let's say XGBoost, uh, we're able to produce a lot of details about the train model that uh, you have um, right from XGBoost. You, you can, of course, like, 
get details like ROC or PR curves. And you can also, um, you know, for XP Boost, get feature importance information. And both of those types of uh, information, both the actual performance of your model and the you know, explainability of your model, that's really important before you click deploy. So we try to surface that to our users in Big Head Service. And of course, all of these um, tools that we have, uh, particularly visualizations around this, they're all available in your notebooking environment. So we kind of use the visualizations that we see people doing in their notebook environment. And um, the most common ones, we kind of elevate them to the status of being incorporated into our infrastructure. If they've kind of reached that uh, point where we really see everybody doing this all the time, or we might be thinking, you know what, feature importance, that's probably something useful that everybody should should see. So we'll just automatically incorporate it. Mm. So this is all built right into the UI. Are you doing anything uh, in Big Head Service or ML Automator that is doing automated hyperparameter optimization? So that's kind of an area that we're hoping to get into right now. Uh, the training phase is, uh, and especially hyperparameter optimization, that's sort of left to the user uh, way at prototype time. Um, but one of the things that we want to do with BigQ, which I mentioned before, is offer hyperparameter optimization. And I think that part of what we need to do here is just have people specify their model to us in a little bit more structured of a way than, all right, here's a Python function that trains my model, mm -hmm. um, for us to be able to do something like hyperparameter optimization. So um, once we have kind of better adoption of that, then we can move on to that next level of abstraction on top of this, where we can automatically train your models. And that includes hyperparameter op optimization, but also, like I mentioned before, using like advanced training algorithms whatever you need. Yeah. Uh, so one of the other platforms in the, the big head ecosystem is Zipline, which handles a lot of the training data, pipeline, data acquisition. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, sure. So this entire process that I mentioned, you know, going from prototype into production, there's a lot of ways that it can just go wrong on you. Um, and what we found is like consistency across the board is really key. So in addition to the four components uh, I mentioned already, uh, we've got three other components whose job is purely just to maintain consistency. Um, you know, some of that is around consistency of your environment um, and maybe the code that you're executing, your the the actual logic of your model. And some of it is around data. Now, data is super important for machine learning projects, having the right feature data. And so we created Zipline as sort of a solution for keeping consistency across the board. And I think that, you know, this is probably one of the areas I think that we see um, sometimes overlooked. Um, and it's definitely a piece that's really hard to get right. Uh, but when you do it, when you have a single system that owns getting feature data for the prototype phase, when you're just kind of playing around uh, and you don't you know, want to wait uh, three days for your backfill job to generate all your data, but also having that same system be responsible for uh, materializing your data when you need to uh, train you know, the entire large-scale model and maybe perform batch inference on the model or even real-time inference with the model. Having one system that is responsible for features, that's really key. And it's a pretty hard goal to get to, but we're taking a stab at it with Zipline. 
Mm. Yeah, I think one of the things that I remember picking up on in your talk, um, maybe it was another talk. I, I, I don't know if I should attribute this to you or if it was someone else, but there was a comment that someone made at this event about data scientists not wanting to share their features. Do you run into that? That's interesting. Um, you know, I guess maybe the cultures vary from company to company. Yeah. Um, but at least at Airbnb, we've uh, gotten a lot of value out of sharing. Now, of course, there's situations where, um, you know, it's not so much about wanting to share your features, but, uh, you know, machine learning and features in general, it's all really tied together. Mm -hmm. um, you can't really separate exactly how your features are calculated from how your model works. And let's say you create some features and I want to use those features and maybe you're not quite happy with that implementation of those features and you want to change them down the line. Uh, well, now I've already got my machine learning model in production. Uh, that's going to be really disruptive to my flow. So I think that maybe some some data scientists might be a little bit more cautious about sharing what they're working on because uh, you know as soon as you uh, share something, you kind of need to keep it a little bit more constant. Uh, but what we found is that you know as long as we're able to appropriately version our feature definitions and kind of deal with it in the same way that you might have a library that you depend on. You know, maybe you depend on TensorFlow version, um, you know, X, but uh, TensorFlow version Y has been released. And as long as you don't upgrade, you know, you're fine. Um, and I think that's that's a pretty important part of uh, our system. And, and the way that works, um, you know, if every single time there is a new version of a uh, particular feature, we had to go and backfill a whole bunch of data up front before you could use it, that would be pretty painful. So uh, this only works when you kind of uh, lazily evaluate your, your feature uh, data sets um, just kind of on demand. And that's something that's like a key focus for Zipline. Mm. Uh, so how are the features defined? The basic way that you define a feature in Zipline, um, you'll define kind of some information about where to fetch the events for that feature and potentially some aggregation that you're going to apply over uh, those events. And we kind of try to model roughly everything as events, but it's sometimes that's a little bit of a tough fit. Um, and then, you know, so now you've kind of told Zipline how your feature needs to be calculated at any given point in time. But Zipline doesn't know what points in time you know you actually need your um, feature information. So what it does at that point is not much. Um, it just kind of keeps track of that. But then when you come to it and you say, all right, I need a training data set um, and you know I need to be able to uh, I need to be able to see my features over the last year, and here's all the particular timestamps I need uh, my features calculated at. At that point, Zipline gets to work uh, gathering all the information it needs and efficiently aggregating everything and materializing your data set. So um, you can imagine, you know, let's say that you have a uh, page on the Airbnb website and you're trying to predict whether a user visiting that page is uh, likely to book, and you want to know maybe the like last seven days of history, um, in the last seven days, how many bookings uh, did that user make? Uh, maybe that's like a feature into your model. So um, specifying uh, you know, where you get the information about bookings and 
that you want a seven-day uh, sum or average or something like that. That's sort of the feature definition side of it. And then the next side of it is uh, when you actually need to materialize your training data set, you actually give Zipline a series of timestamps and say, okay, for these users at these times, give me the information about what their seven-day booking history was. Um, so there's kind of that two-step approach, and that lets us materialize the data only when we need to. Mm. And where are those timestamps coming from? Is this so that you can compare models generated at different times by kind of rolling back the clock and looking at the training data that the models saw when they were trained? Or is this? A, a, are there other use cases? So I, I think the... Um, the way to think about it is uh, the, the training data set that we're creating, the, the columns in that training data set are uh, the features that you might define, maybe like your seven-day booking sum or something like that. Um, and the rows are really all of your data points for your machine learning model, right? So say that um, a user uh, goes and views a particular page, and at, at that point in time, we want to know what the state of all of these various features were. Um, and we know at a, another point in time in the future what actually happened with that user, right? Like, did they book or were they just viewing the page? Um, so each of those data points, you can think of like, imagine you have like millions of pages views over the course of you know some time period each of those data points ends up being an input into your machine learning model right mm -hmm. so just so the event that actually happened plus all of these features that you think are relevant to that exactly event. exactly so uh, you can think of it as zipline materializing that data set for you and um, there is, of course, kind of like the separate question of machine learning model evolution over time and right. how uh, training data is impacting that. And I think that's sort of somewhat of a higher level um, problem than just directly the feature data that involves mm -hmm. the model as a whole as well. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that we're hoping that the UI visualization tools and BigHead service help you do is to kind of see how your model is trending over time. But it sounds like... Zipline's ability to access uh, training data, you know, relative to these timestamps could feed into the ability to, you know, it feeds into reproducibility. Like, can I, um, you know, can I reproduce the steps that went into um, creating this model, you know, if I'm training it at a different time? And right. it sounds like the having an ability to, to have um, just a, having the flexibility to manipulate training data with respect to time is feet would feed into that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think like one way to explain zipline is, uh, we, we like to use this analogy. It's like a time machine for your data warehouse, right? You know, you have all these events that are data points into your machine learning model and they happen, um, you know, all throughout, uh, the continuous space of time that you have in your data warehouse, but your data warehouse isn't really suited for time in as much of a continuous sense. Uh, you know, it's more suited for kind of large level, large, large scale aggregation. And at least um, at Airbnb, our data warehouse is very much oriented in like sort of a day by day snapshot of, of the world. And that works really well for humans. Um, you know, humans can't really process things at a millisecond or by second by second level anyways. Um, so we of course need to aggregate it. Um, but for machines, you really need that high precision at every single point in time for your feature data to actually be useful. 
So um, having that ability to kind of like rewind time and go to any particular point and say, what was the exact state of the world at that moment that my machine learning algorithm would have seen when it's trying to make this prediction, that's really, really valuable. Uh, it's actually something that kind of is parallel to uh, what I worked on before in the trading industry, where you want to be able to rewind the clock and go exactly to a point in time and see the state of the market. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, there's that uh, there's that other part of uh, of using your model, and that is actually performing inference live, right? So if you have a, a great system set up to rewind to any particular point in time, that same system, if it's responsible for calculating your features live right now, um, then you have that absolute consistency between um, between getting gathering all your training data and actually running your model in production and creating live predictions. And what we found is that when when people don't have one system to do both of those things, they end up kind of doing a little bit of manual ETL in their data warehouse, and then maybe you know in their live service they try to replicate that, and that leads to a lot of problems. Uh, you know now you've got two code bases doing basically the same thing, maintained by potentially different people. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity for those things to become inconsistent, and besides, it's just kind of wasted effort. So having that. Um, kind of single system that that uh, encompasses both your offline uh, data warehouse work and your online live like service work. That's really important. Mm. Uh, you mentioned in constructing these features, you're specifying uh, aggregations that are happening over the underlying events. Uh, in the case of, you know, for example, a deep learning pipeline, you may also want to do some standardized set of data augmentation or data transformations, things like that, image uh, transformations. Uh, does Big Head or Zipline support those types of things? Yeah, yeah. And this is actually uh, an interesting question. You know, in general, when it comes to forming our feature data, like before we actually go and submit it into a uh, machine learning algorithm, we do a lot of pre-processing to it. And some of that pre-processing is things like uh, I've talked about before, um, potentially doing aggregations, maybe sums across um, you know several uh, you know several days of data. Maybe if you're trying to get a uh, history of seven-day bookings, like I mentioned before. Um, but then some of it is just like extra post-processing that we're doing, you know, imputation or uh, normalization. And we're trying to find, you know, the right place to draw the line where you, like, where that actually happens. Does it happen in Zipline where you're materializing your feature data uh, data set, or does it happen sort of in your what we call your models pipeline? Um, and that means, uh, you know, what's kind of built into your model directly before your data enters into a, a machine learning algorithm. So. That's kind of a tricky uh, balance, but I think that one uh, lesson we've learned there is that if your model is seeing those same features and doing that same sort of imputation or normalization in production, um, maybe on like live queries that it's getting, then that needs to be more built into sort of the model pipeline. Mm -hmm. And if and if in production, and if you're trying to reproduce something that uh, in your backend data warehouse that. Um, you know, maybe the model would have just seen directly 
from the queries it's getting from a live service. And that kind of belongs more in Zipline. So it's, it's sort of a balance between um, kind of doing some computation upfront in feature calculation and doing some of it as part of the model. Um, and I think we're still kind of trying to figure that out. Mm. Uh, and so for those types of uh, transformations that should happen in the model, uh, does you know, we've talked about kind of this Jupyter Notebook experience. Is there also some kind of workflow or pipeline uh, engine or uh, have you you know, thought about and decided against that? Do you, are there uh, templates or a library of sorts that, um, that data scientists and ML engineers have access to? How do you address the, those kind of abstraction types of issues? Yeah, this is an excellent question. So um, in the early days for us, uh, we did something kind of really lightweight in terms of um, the interface that we provided our users. Uh, we asked them to define basically a Python function that trains your model and another one that um, kind of performs inference with your model. It's just like, hey, there's two Python functions, fill these in, you're good to go. Yeah. And um, there's some there's some trade-offs with that. So on the one hand, it's great, you know, with the flexibility. Uh, you can really almost plug in almost anything. Um, and, you know, it's, it's really simple for people to do, uh, to take what they had already been doing likely in their notebook and just get it kind of more or less straight into production with, by just kind of filling out these functions. Mm -hmm. But what we found was that um, was kind of a, it, it was kind of lacking. We, we found that um, people were recreating, reinventing the wheel a lot when they were writing these uh, models for production. They're, um, you know, really redoing a lot of work that had been done before by themselves in another model or by somebody else. So we decided to go kind of add a little bit more structure to that workflow and have them instead create what we call an ML pipeline. It's really kind of just a pipeline of transformations that happen to your input data um, before its output, you know. And, you know, a model, uh, you can think of the uh, output, sometimes it's a prediction, but, you know, really it's just a function that's transforming some input. So what we've done is we've tried to create a really generic interface for just specifying these transformation pieces and plugging them in together in kind of this like really easy to compose way that you can just create a uh, entire end-to-end -end pipeline to do some stuff like image pre-processing or imputation or normalization and then have that be just enough structure that we can actually understand a little bit more about your model and do some more intelligent things than we could if um, you know, we just had a function to call for training. Um, so for example, if we know that your model uh, is a deep neural network and maybe on the back end we've enabled this feature that uh, gives us maybe distributed training or something like that, um, you know, just having a little bit extra information from our users, that uh, slightly more onerous interface um, for them to specify their model, that's, that's really useful, that's powerful. Um, but that's um, definitely a trade-off because 
our users are looking at that uh, interface and they're wondering like, why do I need to use this? So, uh, you know, I want to just, you know, I already have my model or, um, or, you know, like this is really complicated. I know TensorFlow or I know Keras. Can I just use that? So um, we have to be really careful, careful about adding uh, value in that interface and keeping it really lightweight. Um, and we try to add value, of course, through our infrastructure. Um, but even in the prototyping uh, phase, we need we need our users to adopt these tools upfront. This is something we've learned, and we found that other other companies have also um, come to this realization that those tools that you use to productionize your model can't just um, be incorporated at that point where you're ready to productionize. They need to be used upfront as much as possible because that way you'll really lower that barrier to entry into production. What's the experience or the interface for this these pipelines? Yeah, yeah. So you can think of it kind of like plugging in Lego blocks together. You you hopefully the blocks that you need already exist. Um, you know things like imputation or um, or normalization, and you kind of have uh, a, an easy way to you know I. I I talk about it, uh, we call it a pipeline, but it's really kind of a DAG of computation that's happening on your input feature vector before it produces some output. So really what you're doing, um, we're trying to create a lightweight way for you to create that computation DAG without having to think too much about you know, the details about of, of what DAGs are. Um, but we create this uh, pipeline for you. Um, and, you know, fortunately, I can't, it, the best way to explain it is really to look at a code sample of how you create a pipeline, but I can try to describe it. Um, uh, that, that answers the question for me. It was, it was really, is this, uh, is this something that's defined in code or is there some user interface? And like, is there some, notion of a kind of a repository of you know steps that I might want to plug in that you know I'm doing visually or do I just do I have to know what those are and like I'm using a library a standard library of some sorts and call them from within code it sounds like it's the the code orientation yeah definitely um you know there's several different ways to do things. You could prefer config, you could prefer code, you could prefer you know, UIs for managing this. Right. But what we found is code seems to be the best way to go. Mm -hmm. uh, it, uh, a lot of times we, what we see is people doing powerful stuff like programmatically creating these pipelines or composing them. Okay. And I think that's a lot easier with code. Um, and I think that uh, to address the piece about sharing, yeah, of course, um, you know, we don't want all of our users to be reinventing all of these different Lego blocks. So we have our inventory of pipeline transformations that they can just plug into. But they can also kind of share those um, pieces that they've created um, so that they can easily maybe, you know, if, if somebody on another team is working on a particular model that is sort of relevant, maybe it's an image model and, and you're also working on an image model, you can actually go to the UI and browse and, and click in and see what uh, pipeline transformation uh, components they're using and say, hey, oh yeah, you know what? I actually do need a piece that kind of like resizes my image or something like that. Right. So I'll just go ahead and use what you have. So that was something really important for us to in incorporate into our kind of discoverability and sharing aspect of our UI. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, so for folks that are maturing in their use of uh, machine learning, uh, AI, but don't have a platform in place, 
Are there kind of a handful of core principles that they should be keeping in mind as they start to coalesce different tools into, you know, something that's more coherent? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we've talked to a lot of companies um, and they're all on this, uh, on various stages of this journey uh, in scaling ML at their organization, right? You've got, um, you know, the big uh, tech giants like Google and Facebook, uh, who are really far along, have been doing this for years. And, you know, I think they're getting closer to that ideal of, you know, engineers or data scientists, everybody feeling like they have ML in their toolkit. Um, but, you know, uh, and, and, and I think Uber is actually uh, coming along on that as well with Michelangelo. That Michelangelo is a major inspiration for us. Um, and we've talked to other companies as well who are like kind of going down that journey. Um, and, you know, we're seeing a lot of the same problems. I think that um, two things that I would mention, uh, one is consistency. Be thinking about consistency in you know, all aspects of the life cycle of deploying your machine learning model. And that's what um, pieces like the Big Head Library that we talked about and Zipline are meant to address. Um, and I think that uh, data is, you know, really probably one of the hardest things to get right. Um, so my other point is about, you know, understanding the value of making sure that data uh, and the entire pipeline leading up to machine learning at your company is really well set up for machine learning. I think that, you know, something that we've experienced at Airbnb is that machine learning uh, is kind of at the tail end of a whole lot of work that's happening upstream. You know, you've got your production services, the databases they use, maybe the data warehouse, and then lastly, you've got machine learning tacked on to the end of that. And so, one of the things we've noticed is, it's, is that there's sort of a butterfly effect. You know, upstream changes um, can have a really outsized impact on machine learning. And, and, and one of the things we're trying to change is uh, just getting more visibility around machine learning as something that's being used downstream uh, throughout the company. Um, and I, I think that that's uh, like kind of a broader organizational type problem that you need to be able to solve. Um, getting awareness about machine learning, what the benefits of it are, um, and then also having people incorporated into their uh, workflow and their understanding of kind of like what's downstream. So um, yeah, data is of course like very critical and very hard to get right and really kind of unique to every different organization. Um, the types of data that's important to you, the pipelines you have set up for it. Um, but I think there are certainly some tools and best practices that are emerging um, throughout the industry. I, mean, I think it all kind of boils down to um, this analogy of using some of like the best practices from software engineering that we've accumulated over the decades and applying them to machine learning. Um, I mean, sometimes this analogy doesn't work great, but um, <laughs> as, as with all analogies, but I, I think that it can kind of go a long way. So making sure that you have um, a good developer environment, uh, making sure that you, know, you have solid versioning, um, unit testing, um, continuous build, deployment, uh, monitoring, observability. These are all things that we've kind of arrived on for software engineering, tr traditional software engineering. And one of the things we're trying to do is just translate those concepts to machine learning. Understand like what does it mean to 
unit test your model or integration test your model? Um, what does it mean to like code review a model, right? Like this is also a best practice for software engineering, but we need to kind of reinvent it um, for machine learning. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, what, what does observability look like for a model? So that that's some of like the, in kind of a high level way, how we're going about approaching um, scaling ML. Mm. And uh, we should probably also mention that you announced in the talk that uh, Airbnb is planning to open source Big Head. Yeah, that's right. So Airbnb, we've got um, kind of a culture of uh, being a host to our community. And I think that's why there's been several open source projects from Airbnb, like Airflow and Superset. And we're hoping to actually open source Big Head as well um, in the coming months. We're really excited about that. It's um, it's kind of something that our entire team has been uh, thinking about since the start, um, but it certainly takes a lot of work to actually make happen. So we're hoping to get to that in Q1 of 2019. Awesome, awesome. Well, I'll be keeping track of it, uh, and uh, it's an exciting step. Uh, thanks so much, Atul. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sam. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.